Thank you, Michael. Uh, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome everybody to this Issacos webinar series presentation entitled Approaching Achilles Ruptures in 2021. My name is Kenneth Hunt of the United States, and I'm the chairman of the Issacos Leg Ankle Foot Committee. It's truly my honor to introduce our distinguished Issacos webinar panelists, uh, Dr. Nasef Mohammed Abdelatif from Egypt, uh, Dr. Karin Silvernagel from the United States, uh, Dr. Nicola Mafuli from the UK, and Dr. Sundar Rajan uh, Ramasamy from India. Uh, as was mentioned, we'll be taking questions during the webinar and we'll do our best to respond to some of those during the webinar and we'll have a discussion period afterwards to address the remainder. We appreciate your engagement. Thank you once again for attending. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Our first presentation, I'm honored to welcome uh, Sundar Rajan Ramasamy uh, from India to speak to us about incidents and epidemiology of Achilles ruptures, trends through two, uh, through 2021. Uh, Sundar, uh, thank you for being here. Okay, thank you, Ken, and uh, all, all the panelists on Isakos for having me in this uh, wonderful webinar. And uh, I'm going to speak about incidences and epidemiology of actual structures trends through 2021. When I went through the literatures where I could see uh, only very few slides, uh, few literatures, which you could get incidence of mid-substance uh, ruptures of the tendoachulus. And uh, most and the few studies are from only the few regions like uh, US, Canada, Denmark, and uh, Sweden registry. And most of the studies are from hospital discharge registries. However, still that exact population-based incidence of achilles tendon ruptures is still not known. The incidence ranges vary from two to 37 per 100,000 person. And also there is an increasing incidence over the past decade especially in an older patients because of increasing life expectancy or could be due to increasing proportion of older adults participating in recreational and high demand sports or could be due to comorbidity like in older patients uh, with uh, diabetes mellitus or hypertension that can relate to the tendoachulus ruptures. When you take this uh, paper, this is from the US where they have taken uh, from 100 hospitals from the emergency registry around 32,000 ruptures, where they can see that, uh, that increasing incidence of ruptures, especially in the middle age groups from 20 years to 60 years, which is uh, slowly increasing from 2012 to 2016. And uh, coming to the age and sex distribution, there's usually the first peak of uh, increasing incidence is uh, 25 to 40 years. And second peak is happening in more than 60 years age group. That's what, which we reasoned out in the older patients uh, uh, that increasing incidence of tear ruptures, maybe because of the over activities and, over, and uh, increasing participation in sports. Of course, the men are two to eight times more likely to have tendoachless tears than the females. The less overall risk of rupture in the females could not be explained, could be a hormonal role, which was uh, mentioned in this uh, literature. And also the post-operative outcomes on, are poorer with increased risk of retires in females than males. And also if you see that uh, sex distribution of TA ruptures, this is the Denmark registry where they had studied around 33,000 patients, which was published in KSSTA in 2015. The study period between 94 to 2013 where you can see that increasing incidence from 94 to 2013, almost uh, slow increasing, especially in the age group between 50 to 70 years. But not much change in the female, but in the men, that's increasing incidence of uh, uh, patients in the old age group. 
when you come to the rural and urban populations i couldn't see much literature but this is the uh, literature uh, from the uh, denmark registry again where there is no difference that means that equal participation of men and female uh, men and women and uh, equal number of ruptures uh, with statistically not significant when you come to the um, uh, seasonal variations again you can see this is the paper from the same denmark registry where the increase incidence found to be in the fall followed by winter and spring and lower incidence in summer and this is another paper again that showed that the tear is increasing and highest evidence during the winter and spring lower during summer probably due to cold achilles tendon prior to exercise and sudden increase in load may predispose for tendon rupture or more people with the sedentary lifestyle suddenly starting doing a new sports during winter and spring can resulting in more ruptures and also the same uh, scenario in the canada and the usa registries where there's more incidence of tear rupture in winter and spring and lower in summer however the complications of the tear ruptures in summer usually has more uh, re tears and complications comparing to the tear ruptures happening in winter and spring however the reasons are not made out in this literatures the more most common uh, mechanism of injury is a sporting and recreational activity which constitutes almost around 81% of mid substance tears when coming to the sports i think from up to almost 60 years the basketball is the uh most uh, common sport in uh, tear ruptures this is a us registry followed by tennis and running followed by football and soccer and then the older patients between 60 to 80 years uh, there uh, because of tennis or running or hiking and stretching when you come to the sex distribu uh, distribution in the male already I told that basketball constitutes around 46% and the female the volleyball followed by basketball but they are so close Uh, especially this is the sweden registry again that found that the more injuries during winter and their scenario it is badminton and soccer and uh, other uh, uh, sports could be the again the same reason which was meant out that indoor games are played the maximum during the winter season when you come to the operative and conservative not many literature available to say exact evidence of operative incidence our this is one of the college level athletes uh, incidents taken from the united states around 255 patients where they found 65% of operative rate in 20% of severe achilles injuries and also in that they found that female athletes had higher operative rate compared to the male and and also the time taken to recovery comparing to the male the female took more days around 96 days compared to the 48 days of female patients and uh, and also we should not forget that that steady decline in surgical treatment and preference for the non operative treatment in most of the literatures in the last decades because all the literature, literature what i'm quoting all from 2015 to 20 the study period is around this uh, this decade and this is the again uh, which i showed the denmark registry you can see that increase of uh, cases in the over the recent years but the decline in the surgical treatment and the more and more towards the conservative management in all the age groups even if they take an age group here you can see that from the younger age group of 18 to 13 years the treatment of surgical treatment is coming down and uh, even the older people the surgical treatment is coming down however we should not forget that still the surgical treatment more towards an younger patients around in the second decade who took uh, who takes participates in the sports activities 
because of the increasing strength which is shown in very biomechanical studies there are more or uh, randomized studies this is the swedish data again we can see that the injury rate uh, is increasing from 2001 to 2012 but uh, the surgical treatment is slowly declining to uh, conclude this slide with all the four registry from us canada denmark and sweden these are the four which i had in this uh, uh, most of my talks you see the incidence is almost increasing uh, from uh, 18 to 29 in the canada and 26 to 31 per uh, 100,000 in denmark and also you see the male to female ratio is from 3 to uh, 3.5 is to 1 to up to 4 is to 1 and the mechanism of injury more often are sports related the mean age of the rupture usually happens in the middle age you can see around it's a fourth decade in most of the registries and also the trend in surgical management which i already quoted you can see that in canada registry it is dropped from 20 to 9.2 for 100 ruptures in denmark from 16 to 6.3 and it is in sweden dropped from 43 to 28 per 100 ruptures however the limitations are even though the results are all these studies are similar they do not represent the population in the whole world the incident may not be the true but only patient presenting to the hospital are included however i could not find any evidence for the degenerative tears with this background i thought uh, i can uh, just put a two slides on the insertional tear which happens in our hospital which is an 600 bedded tertiary level hospital where we do operate or uh, treat very few mid substance tear because may we may treat few athletic patients compared to the more degenerative tear you can see that 80% of the our tears are degenerative tear which happens usually the age between 50 to 60 years of uh, fifth and sixth decade we found there is a lot of uh, degenerative tears of course the male to female ratio is almost same like a mid substance tears and mechanism of injury the most of the injuries are resulting in this 50 years to 60 years happening because of the fall or the just sudden forceful dorsiflexion while walking in uneven surfaces so there are more, more of degenerative tears to conclude the future research can be to evaluate the specific mechanism of the injuries beyond whether they were contact or non contact it may help in preventative training and improve athletic wear to avoid the future injuries and also research should can focus upon the different manifestation of the acute tendon rupture including the development of chronic tendon rupture acute tendon rupture and chronic tendinopathy and these were the recommendations were made by in most of the literatures thank you very much Sundar, that was outstanding. Thank you very much for that overview. Uh, our next spe speaker will be Karin Silbernagel, who's going to speak to us on non-operative management and post-operative rehabilitation. Uh, Karin, thank you. Go ahead and share your screen. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I almost forgot to unmute myself. Um, so I'm going to talk about non-operative management and post-operative rehabilitation. And I'm a physical therapist and I work at University of Delaware in the US. So if you're looking at post-injury management and rehabilitation, really at this point, they're the same irrespective of surgery or not. If you're looking at surgery or non-surgical treatment, they're both either a poor predictor for functional outcome, it's a moderate predictor of symptoms. And when we're looking at the re-ruptures rate, they're getting really close to uh, regardless of surgical or non-surgical. When you're looking at the importance of post-injury management though, there seems to be that um, 
the rehabilitation may be more important rather um, than what you kind of choose for the initial treatment. So the rehabilitation seems to be a crucial aspect of the recovery for these patients. And if you're looking at immediate management of non-surgical treated patients, that traditional ankle immobilization with non-weight bearing was not found to be superior to early weight bearing with or without functional ankle motion. So it seems that clinicians may consider early weight bearing and functional brace as a safe and cost-effective alternative to non-weight bearing with plaster casting. So um, looking at the non-surgical, it seems that both um, surgical and non-surgical can have the same uh, early mobilization. The main thing that I want to focus on too, to put in perspective when you're choosing these treatment is what are really the full um, obstacles to full recovery? So calf muscle weakness is one of the main thing. And we see deficits in strength of 10 to 30%. When we're looking at heel rise endurance, we see deficits of 20 to 30%. And only 50% of patients can perform a standing single leg heel rise at three months. And this was irrespective of surgical or non-surgical treatment. The other issue is that the tendon heal longer. So the tendon elongates during healing. And we see similar elongation regardless of surgery or not in the studies that we've done. Um, there is a discussion about if you are aware of avoiding the tendon elongation, you could feasibly do more with it with surgery to prevent it to happen, but that has not been studied yet. And the amount of tendon elongation correlates with heel rise deficits. It correlates with the recovery of gait and it correlates with the, the degree of symptoms. So this is an issue for the recovery. The other thing when we're looking at early functional mobilization is that tendons, we think tendon needs to be loaded during the healing to have improved structure. And early rehabilitation mobilization seems to result in decreased risk of re-rupture. And early rehabilitation and mobilization results in higher patient satisfaction and has not been found to affect outcome negatively in either surgically or non-surgically treated patients. So we were then asking ourselves in two randomized, uh, two uh, systematic reviews, really what is this early functional mobilization that everybody's talking about? And mainly it includes some kind of weight bearing, usually starting sometime between one and two weeks, uh, followed by some kind of range of motion or maybe some isometrics. So usually the exercises are initiated at week two. Um, however, the exercises are very poorly described. It talks about isometric heel rise or TheraBand, but generally very poorly described. So it's hard to compare what this really means. The other issue that we're having is we're talking about weight bearing early mobilization um, starting around one week, um, but really is it the same for everybody? And we tend to have these hard boots with heel lifts to minimize the dorsiflexions, to minimize the um, risk of re-rupture and minimize tendon elongation. And this is how we perceive people with weight bearing those. However, there are, when we see clinically, a lot of people using boots that might be really soft instead. So you might have a lot more mobility. And in some of our research now, people are buying these unicanes to do walking more and then actually have less loading. And there's also fear among re-rupture among both the patient and sometimes the physical therapist and maybe the orthopedic surgeon too, that affects even though you tell somebody they can weight bear, how much do they actually weight bear? And that is probably something that we really need to study to understand how the loading affects the recovery. When we're looking at the rehabilitation, we divide it up into four phases. We call the early mobilization phase, controlled mobilization phases, usually when they have some kind of 
race or caste in that stage, usually from zero to six weeks to eight weeks. And then we start the rehabilitation, the early rehabilitation, late rehabilitation, and then the return to sports phase. And we discuss this, this took somewhere cover up to a year where some people at the earliest that I've had returned to sport is four months, the average is six months, and some people don't return up to one year. So for the controlled mobilization phase, it's usually what we're talking about, the early functional mobilization phase. And the goals in this phase should really promote tendon healing. You need to minimize the tendon elongation, but you also want to minimize the muscle atrophy. And you want to avoid re-rupture, infection, and DVTs. So the thing that we start with this is usually starting and at the pictures in the bottom where you can see a heel rise sitting uh, from the heel lift, usually they don't sit outside the boot, but kind of do this in the boot. So you can start actually activating the calf in the boot from the degree of plantar flexion that you have. Uh, later stages, usually at two to four weeks, we can take them out and work on plantar flexion. Uh, it's really important here though that you minimize the degree of dorsiflexion to avoid stretching that tendon so that you have too long of a tendon. However, you can start doing things if you're wearing the boot like the picture down in the bottom, working on squats and weight bearing to make sure that you activate the patient beyond just considering the Achilles tendon rupture. I think it's important for these, especially athletes, that it's just the Achilles tendon rupture that's injured. There's nothing else in their body that's injured and they can't exercise. Six, uh, rehabilitation during week six to 11. This is when the goal, we really wanna avoid re-rupture. You have the highest rate of re-rupture you, once you take the boot off and people start mobilizing. Still infection and DVTs. You wanna avoid further tendon elongation. What we've seen in our studies though, the loading is we really wanna increase this cross-sectional area of the tendon by the loading. So the tendons start building with putting more tissue around, um, kind of a callus around the rupture. We need to overcome the fear of loading. We need to recover walking and improve calf muscle strengthening. So the patients usually start walking without a brace. We have them walking with shoes um, to make sure that they don't walk too flat footed. We really start uh, strengthening the calf. If they're allowed to walk, then it's safe to perform double leg heel rises. And it's important to teach patients and therapists and others that the speed of loading affects the peak loading in the tendon. So if you're doing really fast movements, you might have higher peak, which might be a greater risk of re-rupture. These are exercises that we're performing in our clinic, like bilateral heel rises, they can cheat as much as they want, but still recruiting the healthy side and the uninjured side, seated weight bearing. And we also really work on gait training that you can see kind of working on loading that leg behind them to start activating the calf or doing things as um, backwards walking again to activate the calf to working slowly and surely in the clinic. And then uh, we just published an, a study um, that I might share if people are interested in, but we really try to look at how do you load the tendon to understand and we built kind of a tier system to understand how heavy these weights, um, the load on the tendon is. And I think the important is to understand if you're walking, we're talking about a loading index of 0.4, meaning around the peak loading is 3.3 times body weight. And from there, if you can allow walking, then you know how much you can add for other exercises. 
The expected outcomes at three months is usually we see that 50% of the patients can be able to perform a single leg heel rise. And that's what we're trying to shoot for to be able to do. We don't see any difference between surgical and non-surgical, but we do see that it's correlated with fear. So if somebody is very fearful early on, they might not be able to start with exercise or afraid of loading, and that might hamper their recovery. We do see at three months that people that can perform a seated heel rise with 50% of body weight, if they can perform at least um, 20 reps of those, then they are have a great chance of performing a single leg heel rise. So, so working on the seated and really pushing the weight seems to be a way to really working on the standing heel rise. In the late rehabilitation phase, we're really at this point, we're less worried about ruptures. We know that the tendon elongation that's gonna occur have probably stabilized at this time. So now it's mainly working on recovery of tendon strength, muscle strength and endurance and function. And this is more of a normal rehabilitation that you consider um, going from progressing to jumping and running, going from jumping with two legs to increase the load to one leg. We have a milestone that we use that at this stage, if a patient can perform five single leg heel rises, and we're talking about 90% of their available height because their height's gonna be affected um, because of the tendon elongation, they can start their running progression, such as rebounding heel rises, hopping in place and jogging in place. And these are kind of pictures of what our quick rebounding heel rises look like. That's the first step. The second step is to start then in place, working on the bilateral hopping. And then the next step is to really kind of start jogging in place. And those things you can do in the clinic prior to send somebody out to uh, start running. When you're looking at the return to sports phase, um, the treatment and rehabilitation goals are return to team, return to field, to return to competition. We did publish a case study that is with Maurizio Fancini that I think describes well in a soccer player. I think the important thing here is to have realistic expectations. And in general, when you work with people that are not elite athletes, it seems to be that one year is the plan when they're actually returning. You also need to consider that maybe you need to think about how to comp compensate for the lack of the tricepsura recovery. We have, um, we use a test battery of various tests of calf muscle strength, uh, endurance, jumping abilities to evaluate when we think somebody is ready for the return to sports. And we want them to be eight, between 80 and 90% of the other side. Heel rise height measurements that you can do with a tape measure has been correlated to the degree of tendon elongation. So this might help you understand if the lack of recovery or function is related to tendon elongation that you can't rehab away, or is it due to um, strength deficits that you can continue rehab. So what are realistic expectations? And this is from one of our randomized clinical trials where we looked at the heel rise work, which is basically the number of repetitions lifting your body weight, the total amount of work. And we can see at 12 months between surgical and non-surgical, the recovery is between 60, 70, 78%. The interesting thing is, however, we have ranges from 35% to 120%. So there is a big variation in how people recover. And I think that's the interest that we should continue our research because if some people can have 120% recovery, we should be able to get more people fully recovered if we know what the problems are and how to get that better. 
And the same goes for heel rise height, the same goes for jumping, that we have these wide variations. One of the things that we've also done that I wanna share with you is really looking at um, if you lose strength in the calf, um, can you compensate or where do you compensate? And these circles basically show in the lighter color, the work done when you're landing and the work done when you take off. So somebody standing on one leg doing a hopping motion. And what we can see in an uninjured side, 10% of the work when uh, landing is done in the hip, 7% at the knee and 22% at the land uh, ankle. And then you can see you use a lot of the ankle when you push up, since this is kind of an ankle, it's like jumping rope. What we see in the ruptured patients that the capacity to do this jumping, if you look at it overall, looks the same, but they are now significantly using more of the knee in the landing and the takeoff. And the message here is that if you're working with somebody, they might remain deficits in the ankle. Doesn't mean that they can't go back to full function, but you really should start thinking about working on the knee while early in the rehabilitation, because that's where you might have to take up some of the lack of function from the ankle. And we do see a lot of people developing knee pain and things. So we are really working early on on knee strength to make sure that we can help them with the compensation. So when we look at the rehabilitation, some patients recover 100%, so it is possible. The rehabilitation mobilization is crucial for outcome. Historically, we pushed the boundaries of rehabilitation in the surgical group first, but up to this point, we had the same early loading has been equally successful in non-surgical patients in the next step. I think at this point, uh, we're probably not gonna push it more, but we need to understand what is it that makes somebody successful and somebody not. But the main difficulties are from the rehabilitation perspective is that to measure how much the exercise actually load the Achilles tendon is something that we try to figure out to understand how the exercise works. We need to exercise the muscle and we need to understand the load on the tendon to both protect the tendon and give it enough load to actually recover. And we also need to understand what muscles are activated during the exercise because somebody can plantar flex their foot in the exercise, but use mainly flexor halus as long as, and not then really working on the calf that we're planning on. So with that, I wanna just acknowledge my funding sources and thank you for having me. Karen, that was outstanding. Thank you for, for going through all of that. Um, incredible update. A quick question from the chat, just, just because it's timely. Does, is there any role for non-operative management of a distal rupture and avulsion rupture from, uh, from the calcaneus, or is this only for the mid-substance rupture? I would say that these are all studies made for the mid-substance, and you have to realize that, and that is where you can get the tendon ends together. I think all of you from the sur surgeon's perspective and things too, I would be much more concerned to assume that somebody would heal together if it's in a distal rupture, especially if it's closer to the bone. So, um, but I think this, the research is not there to be 100% supportive of that, so. Perfect, yeah, that was my understanding as well. I appreciate your, your succinct answer. So we'll move on to the next presentation. Uh, uh, Dr. Nasef Abdelatif from Egypt is uh, going to speak to us about uh, his uh, unique approach to uh, repairing Achilles and, and his briefly his journey uh, in getting there. So Nasef, thank you. Okay, so um, thank, I want to thank you, Sakas, and thank you especially, Ken, for um, uh, putting this uh, together. I'm, I'm already learning a lot, and um, I want to thank the, the excellent panelists with me. So um, as Ken alluded to, I'm Nasef Mohammed Nasef uh, from um, Cairo, Egypt, and I'm going to uh, basically be talking about 
um, everything other surgical options other than the um, percutaneous in eight minutes. So that's um, quite a task and I hope I do not uh, that uh, along uh, there. So these are my disclosures. They do not have any um, relevance in particular to this uh, particular um, talk. Now, I, I think the aim here is to try and give a broad overview of the rationale behind the surgical repairs for the management of these acute Achilles tendon ruptures and show some of the recent evidence in the literature regarding these surgical procedures. And uh, I might be able to detail our uh, recent arthroscopic um, surgical management um, specifically for these acute Achilles uh, tendon ruptures. Now, um, starting off, what have we learned from functional therapy, and, uh, um, and obviously I, I prepared this talk before I heard to Dr. Sibonagel, um, but I think what we, we, we have learned from functional therapy or even traditional therapy is that the Achilles tendon just wants to heal. Now, early functional motion, they might reduce the re-rupture rates, but as um, each of the previous panelists alluded to, you do not want to lose that muscular tendinous tension. So you do not want to end with a good Achilles repair, but you still have lost the muscular tendinous tension. And if you're doing it surgically, you want to minimally disrupt the paratenum and the soft tissues in that motion, in that area. And we have learned from biomechanical and experimental studies that early motion would allow for the proper collagen formation. Now, but what exactly is functional therapy? Like Dr. I mean, Dr. Sebenakel has shown us a perfect example of, and she used the same paper actually. This was a systematic review from 2019, but you know, we still do not have a standardized definition of what exactly to do. Day one, day two, the second week, the fourth week. And we still have the variable interventions and the outcome measures. Each and every paper would differently approach this and they would, the outcomes are, are not exactly the same. And if, what have we learned on the other hand from open repair um, um, surgery? Well, we've learned that less is definitely more. So that is in regard to the sutures and the amount of dissection you do. And as we said, the skin is very, very fragile and it can break down easily. And this is the nightmare for anyone who's done any one of these open. And we've been repairing these surgically ever since Hippocrates and more recently since Parr in 1633. Now this was um, uh, when the first person that was attributed in modern literature to start um, uh, treating these surgically. And we've seen different sutures, suture configurations, whether it's a direct repair, whether it's an augmented repair. We've seen double bundles, single bundles, double castors, single castors, Karakovs, and even four-strand Karakovs. But I, I really don't believe it's the amount of tissue, um, the amount of, I mean, sutures you put in. And they all have one thing in common. Um, we, I'm not here to actually discuss the surgical techniques, as you can see, they're varied. But I think what usually happens with these open repairs is what we're afraid of is the skin breakdown and where they are most fragile biomechanically, we know it's at the suture, it's at the suture not end, which is usually in between the rupture tendons. And this is where I think Sam Labib, as we know, he, he, he invented this or he told us about this gift, this gift box technique. And he's also uh, incidentally of Egyptian origin. And, and his technique showed us that you could also take these knots and place them as far away from the raptured sites um, as you can. And that would uh, possibly reduce the amount of um, 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 failure that will occur at that knot suture interface. So what is the evidence? And as we've seen, it's been fluctuating in the last two decades. We have had randomized control studies that have started persuading us to go to surgical, uh, to non-surgical and operative. Um, uh, techniques, but like 
um, uh, the previous panelists showed us, these are studies that were usually done between 2000, 2004. And um, also in meta-analysis, we've seen that uh, people are saying that there is no sufficient evidence to, to persuade us that operations might lead to better functional recovery. And um, um, Soren Sauer's, of course, paper was also one of those that was defining. And it said that it's best for us to use conservative treatment um, that should be considered if you do have the means of functional um, rehabilitation. And actually, um, some countries and some regions, um, like Dr. Sanchan showed us, they have actually started swaying away from operative treatment or surgical treatment altogether. And if you look at their registries, as doctor, the doctor showed, you would find them decreasing in their surgical rates. This was a, more, a very recent one that came out in the foot and ankle surgery. It was from our sister university in Cairo, Ain um, Shams, and they showed the surgical versus non-surgical in a systematic review and meta-analysis and they decided that uh, from the literature, the surgical techniques might reduce the rates of re-ruptures, but they also have a higher incidence of complications. So the pendulum is still swaying. It's we're, we're being taken non-operative, we're being taken back to the surgical, and then maybe back again to non-operative. And I think we're still not yet decided. But some things have been, well, not done and dusted, but they have been shown. Uh, augmentation, it probably doesn't add much to a direct repair. And also, as Dr. Sybil Nackel showed, whether you're doing operative or non-operative, early motion is one of the most important things to allow that tendon to heal. And also, tightness of the repair and age, and this was a very recent by Car um, a study by Carmart and colleagues in, in just in 2020 that showed that the tightness will be a predictor of that heel rise height and will show you how good you're actually going to be getting that tendon to heal properly. And also out of the Foot and Ankle International in 2019, it showed that the post-operative Achilles tendon elongation, if you measure it with the Achilles tendon resting ankle, it, it, if there is an elongation, it will have a deteriorous effect on the plantar flexion power. And we still do not have a general consensus about the method of actually measuring these tendons after we repair them or treat them non-operatively. The most recent systematic review, also in 2020, it showed us that possibly the minimally invasive are better than the open. An, acute, an active functional rehabilitation is possibly better than a traditional functional rehab, uh, um, uh, rehabilitation, standard rehabilitation. So if you're going to go, you'd either choose the minimally invasive or the um, uh, uh, active functional rehabilitation. But what about professional uh, uh, players? What about the high elite athletes? Trofa has done a lot of work in, in this uh, sub-segment, in this specific segment of people. And he's shown that you, you'll, be, you'll be surprised to learn that maybe return to play, 30% of these patients will not possibly make it. And they might still be dwindling around their pre-injury level up to two years. If they do pass the two-year level, they might get back to their um, um, uh, pre-injury levels again. So people have been swaying us, if you're going surgical, you might go to the mini open. But what exactly is mini open? There's this gray area in literature where is it the smaller incision? Is it that you have to visualize the tendon ends? Do you have to place the sutures directly into the Achilles and repair the part tendon? Or do you take them through the skin? And this is being co more commonly referred to as the percutaneous. And I'll leave that, of course, to our uh, chairman, Ken, to talk about. But there are people who have described these small, minimally invasive techniques to uh, repair the Achilles tendon. And they show you that they, they can reduce the skin incision. So 
In that minimally invasive era, there is the there is the arthroscopy, of course, and we like the arthroscopy. It's nice, it's it's niche. But what they were doing in the very relatively few studies was that they would be putting the scope in, looking at the suture ends, and making sure that their percutaneous technique would come out through the suture, uh, through the ruptured ends of the Achilles, and they might even use son uh, sonography with that. And this is where we thought about me and my group, um, Jorge Batista and um, um, uh, Helder Ferrer, we decided to do the endoscopic flexor halysis longus transfer for the acute Achilles rupture. We do know that it has been working for the chronic cases and we decided to try them out in the um, acute. And our idea behind that was we wanted to attain the adequate muscular tenderness tension. We wanted to provide a biological environment for healing, provide the adequate rapid functional rehabilitation without that fear factor, and to minimize the skin and soft tissue for the open and the sural nerve complications for the percutaneous. And when we looked back in literature, we saw the, there was a huge amount of literature and they were all um, um, assessing them by the AFAS, the ATRS perhaps, and the Tegna. We used all of these and the return to play, but we also, of course, um, uh, measured the hallux dynometry and the ankle plantar flexion strength. And what was very important in our studies, we looked at the Achilles tendon resting angle. And we would do that both preoperatively at the injury Intraoperatively, as you can see, we would drape both legs and both feet and check the Achilles tendon resting angle. And then at the end of the operation, we would try and mimic as much as possible the normal resting tension of the normal contralateral side. And it was, it was surprising to us that when we looked at these on a minimum of 18 months, we found that the FHL dynamometry, the ankle plantar flexion, the um, ATRAs were more or less insignificantly um, between the um, uh, operated and the non-operated side. So this is just a quick uh, illustration. Um, I, I'm not really running up uh, off my eight minutes. This is just the um, uh, a case. Uh, now this is one week and we would do the one week post-operative just to check that we have uh, placed the screw exactly where we wanted as far back posterior. We've taken that FHL tendon back to where we want it to be. And this is the 18 month post-operative in one of our cases showing you how much the tendon had hypertrophied. And there's a homogenous streak of black there uh, with the Achilles, it's healed nicely enough. And so that would be the pre-op, that would be the post-op and that would be the 18 month um, post-op. Now, if I were to show you an Egyptian soccer player, you'd probably say, uh, yeah, well, he's Egyptian, so he probably doesn't play very good football. But if I show you one of Jorge Batista's um, Boca Juniors players, um, Argentinian soccer player, well, maybe that would have a little bit ringed. And you can see, this is the guy here on the right. And you can see that explosive burst of spurt. He had an endoscopic FHL re um, repair done. I think it was um, a year and a half before this. And he returned back to play. So in conclusion, the Achilles tendon will try to heal. You must try and recreate your musculotendinous tension. You should try and disrupt the power tendon and the soft tissue as minimally as you can. Early motion will probably allow for proper collagen um, formation and probably reduce your re-rupture rate. Minimally invasive procedures might provide adequate comparable results if these same principles are met, albeit with probably a lower complication rate but we should be very critical of literature because as you can see, we still need high quality studies in various areas. We're in 2020, uh, uh, and we're still not quite there. And we should have standardized methods of evaluation. Thank you. And I hope I did not really um, shoot my time much. Oh, no, Seth, that was terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a, a great overview and very interesting to see your, your path toward that technique. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, uh, to seeing more of that as you move forward. So I, I'm going to uh, just speak briefly on on a cutaneous repair technique. 
I have no, uh, uh, I have no uh, relevant disclosures to this presentation. So Achilles tendon ruptures, as we've discussed, are very common. We see them frequently in athletes. Uh, open repair is, is still the, the standard, I think, for most elite athletes. Now, traditionally, the, the larger incision open repair was associated with higher complication rates, long time to recovery, and really an unpredictable return. So for all the reasons mentioned, uh, we tried to identify less invasive techniques and, and better functional rehab techniques in order to address that. So I, I'm going to discuss a percutaneous repair technique uh, that has been developed. So I, I'm always evaluating these patients. It's very important to identify where the rupture is uh, for this technique because you want to be very close to the rupture uh, when you place your incision. Um, it's also important to mark out the sural nerve, as you see there with those dotted lines, and protect that throughout the case. That's definitely the most concerning structure for injury. Once you've identified the, the rupture site, I make the incision at the proximal end of the rupture. I separate out the peritinon. That's a very important layer to close independently, but all the work is done deep to it. Now, the jig I use is commercially available. It essentially goes deep to the peritinon on either side of the tendon, and you can dial it in to distract so that you can get the jig on either side of the tendon. And then you're able to place sutures uh, using a beef needle uh, through this. So you, you know that you're on either side of the tendon, you know that you're not injuring the sural nerve, and so you can advance your, your sutures and get a good bite on the tendon distally and proximally. Now this system advances five sutures, three of them are a suture tape material, which is a little bit stronger in pullout strength. Um, and then the central of those, uh, of those sutures is knotted so that there's no sliding at all. Um, and that just, uh, that just pre prevents risk of elongation during rehabilitation. So once the sutures are placed, you can advance them into the central incision. As I mentioned, um, excuse me. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there is a loop suture in the middle. So you can actually lock the center stitch so that there's no sliding and so that it won't pull through the tissues. And that, that's really helpful to give you the stability and the repair to allow early rehabilitation and early range of motion. On the proximal end, it's the exact same process. So you advance the five sutures, you lock the center one, um, and then all the sutures will be out in the middle for, uh, uh, for your repair. Um, so there, there are alternatives to this. If, if you don't have access to one of those jigs, there is a cost to it, at least in the United States. Um, there, there's good uh, reports that a ring forceps, which is essentially the same concept, it's a little more technically challenging, but it's the same idea. And that, that's shown to be a very effective way to do a percutaneous repair. I always refer, repair these essentially in maximum plantar flexion. As uh, Dr. Silvernagel pointed out, we don't want these tendons to elongate because that's a really hard thing for us to we, it's something we can't actually rehabilitate or reverse. So I keep the ankle plantar flexed. I tie each of those three strands together. I will over sew the repair centrally with an absorbable stitch. And then uh, really important, as you see, to protect the sural nerve throughout the repair. That's one structure you just don't want to injure or stretch. Um, I'll always repair the, the peritinon uh, as a separate structure. That's the blood supply for the tendon, and you don't want it to scar into the skin because that can create symptoms as well. You want to check your tension, make sure it's intact, and make sure you like where it is before you close up because you can always change it at that point. And then I'll routinely use biologics. So I like platelet-rich plasma. I mostly will use this when there's some evidence of degeneration of the tendon. Um, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, on the MRI examination, but it's a nice tool. It reduces inflammation and has, uh, has some good evidence behind it. 
Um, the closure, as you can see, is really low tension because of that transverse incision along the skin lines. There's very little tension, um, and so the, the incision heals quite rapidly, and I splint it in plantar flexion for 10 days before starting rehabilitation. Um, important to note that the surgical times are, are much shorter with the percutaneous uh, repair, at least in my hands, than the previous open repair. There's good data to support this. Bob Anderson's group in Charlotte in the U.S. Uh, published a relatively large uh, comparative study. They showed no differences in re-ruptures, nerve injury, or wound complications, but they did find that the percutaneous approach was more likely to return to activities by the five-month period. I, I want to point out that uh, the percutaneous approach has coincided with acceleration and rehabilitation techniques, and I think that's a big part of why we're getting patients back sooner. Um, a recent meta-analysis of studies uh, up until that date showed that there is some benefit to the minimally invasive technique, the, the uh, percutaneous technique in terms of outcomes, infection rate, uh, and return to pre-injury uh, level of activity. So there's, there's good data to support this. PRP briefly, this is obviously a big topic. There is some evidence, not, not strong or consistent, but there's some evidence that this can be helpful. Uh, one study showed that the MRI maturation index was better in the PRP group than the non-PRP group. Uh, to me, this is a, an easy, low-risk uh, addition that, that I believe is helpful, and I think athletes believe it's helpful. So return to sport, Dr. Silbernagel covered, covered this well. This is really, really important um, uh, for all providers to be involved in this process. Um, I use an early weight-bearing and functional rehabilitation protocol. Um, historically, return to sport, we've done a pretty good job, but not great. You can see that about 30% of, of professional athletes don't return to sport. Uh, most of this is using previous surgical and rehabilitation techniques. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful that, that minimally invasive techniques and others as have been presented today can improve this, uh, both uh, how quickly we get patients back to, to sport and how predictable the return can be. So in summary, the percutaneous repair has upside. It's a shorter surgery time, it lowers complication rates as associated with early return to activities. Um, it's not technically difficult, but we do need more data to demonstrate that this has return to sport advantages in order to justify uh, uh, the learning curve and the potential cost. Um, so with that, I will unshare my screen, I think, and we will move on to the last presentation. Uh, my honor to welcome uh, Dr. Nicola Mafuli. Um, Dr. Mafuli will, will give our final presentation on his uh, novel and cost-effective technique for Achilles repair. Nicola, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sure you will all agree that the presentations have been, have been absolutely superb and therefore there had to be a way of lowering the standard and that is why I've been invited to talk at this uh, in this great uh, webinar that uh, Dr. Hunt has organized. Um, let me go through some of the um, concepts behind management of Achilles tendon rupture. What we want to do when we face a patient with an Achilles tendon rupture is to minimize the morbidity of the injury itself. It has become very evident over the course of the last few years that we want to reduce the post-operative ten tendon lengthening. We want to optimize ra ra rapid return to full function and we want to minimize other complications. Classically, surgical management have been, uh, has been performed either through open or percutaneous or minimal invasive techniques. And recently, more and more evidence has been accumulating for percutaneous techniques. And Dr. Hunt has put forward some of the techniques that are jig-based and are very, very um, accessible to just about everybody. Up to now, open surgical repair has been considered the gold standard for Achilles tendon ruptures in young and fit individuals. 
the this is one of my old cases. I've, the last time I've opened an Achilles tendon uh, for an for acute surgery was uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, the and this is what it really looks like. There is a, um, it's a, you know, a real mess, and we'll be sure you will agree with me. But in general, uh, advances in surgical techniques encourage direct tendon repair, and the excellent results of surgical repair indeed have helped our athletes to return to their pre-injury physical activities, even though it must be said that if you are an elite athlete and therefore you will be in the top fifth centile, sort of top 5% of the population um, working um, at a very high level of physical activities, then um, we don't quite do as well as we would like to do. And that is, as it has been shown, about 30% of our patients at that kind of level will not be able to return to full normality. We've spoken about primary uh, augmentation and uh, the scientific evidence does show that there are more complications and there are no advantages over simple end-to-end -end repair. And in my hands, it has been totally banned. I happen to have been at the head of the department for several years now in my own setting, and um, you know, nobody dares doing a primary augmenting repair, augmentation repair with using anything because they know they would they would be crucified the following day. We've spoken about percutaneous percutaneous minimal invasive suture technique. Um, these are the common ones that have been described over the course of the last 40 years or so. The classical one has been the Mayan-Griffith technique um, over here in 1977. Remember, Mayan-Griffiths were, uh, were based in Honolulu. It's a beach society, and therefore, they had to have small incisions because people would be showing off their legs and didn't like the big, ugly incisions that um, were produced uh, by, by open repairs. Weather Bannister in Bristol described some, um, ve some very elegant percutaneous techniques based on three transverse incisions along Langer lines, uh, one distal, sorry, one uh, distal, one at the structure side, and one proximal to it. Mike Carmen was my registrar when uh, we described uh, the, uh, our own technique. Uh, Mike was the first author for the technique that I've been using since 2001. And in those years, also, Asal, Matthias Sal, who is in Geneva, described the Achillon technique, which has been the mother of uh, some of the percutaneous technique, uh, which we have seen earlier on presented by Dr. Hunt. This is the Kamonema Fully technique. It is undertaken under local anesthetic, and you can see it's based on a total of seven um, seven small incisions. The largest one is the transverse incision at the in the area of the of the rupture itself, um, and it's about 1.2 centimeters. All the others are produced with an 11 blade, which is the kind, same kind of blade, the same kind of scalpel blade that I use when I do arthroscopy. So they are in the region of 0.8 to 1 centimeter. Um, up to now, the uh, meta-analysis and the systematic reviews have shown that there is that when comparing um, Achilles tendon percutaneous repairs to traditional open procedures, there are lower complications rate, and uh, um, the results are essentially the same. I've used percutaneous techniques in the elderly patients, in diabetic patients, and even in high-performance athletes. Uh, the 
the acute, uh, the, the main Griffith repair is, is the uh, grandmother, essentially, of all the percutaneous repairs, but, and even though it's very elegant and uh, it, it does change our, our understanding of these repairs, it does have a high rate of atherogenic surround nerve injuries. And if you look at the, with a critical eye at the available articles, you will see that up to 30% of patients may experience a, um, a surround nerve injury. Webb and Bannister developed their own technique in 1999, and we modified the, um, the, the method using stronger absor absorbable suture. And instead of using a simple box configuration, we used Kester suture configuration. But things have changed. And now we use the technique that I was telling you about with a total of seven stab wounds. These are the sequences. Um, I'm uh, sorry, I didn't incorporate a video over here, but if you go in, on to view Medi, you will see a video performed in uh, real time um, of me performing the technique, and it takes about seven minutes to perform. Um, it is cheap, it allows strong repair. As I told you, it can be undertaken in older patients and in elite athletes, and it has similar outcomes whether, whether it's uh, performed in younger or in older individuals. There is no doubt a reduced risk for swell nerve damage because the stab wounds are parallel to the course of the nerve, and in this way, we prevent such, such injury. Also, we performed this, uh, this technique under local anesthesia by infiltration, by local injection of local anesthesia. And so if we transfix the sural nerve, which may happen at times, then it is easy, the patient will tell you, and so it is easy to, re to, um, to uh, remove all the sutures and start again. Uh, there are advantages in uh, Achilles tendon repair using uh, open open repairs. Um, despite the, risk, the high risk of skin wood problems, uh, you, if you believe in correct alignment of the torn tendons, then obviously by observing what you are doing, you are able to align the, the tendon ends perfectly well. The functional results, sorry, the functional results are good, uh, but they are good also in percutaneous repair. There is a less chance of rupture, but the recent meta-analysis comparing open repair with modern uh, percutaneous technique shows that there is really no evidence of a difference. Some surgeons still think that uh, open repair offer superior strength of repair, but please go and read the 1990 article in Foot and Ankle International, which describes the biomechanical studies which compared open versus percutaneous techniques. And you will discover that uh, the open technique used double the number of strands used in a percutaneous technique. And therefore, it is not surprising that it was doubly as strong. Both techniques allow early mobilization, early active mobilization, so it is not really an issue that way. In our technique, we um, the way in which we uh, construct the uh, we construct the repair allows the torn tendon ends to be advanced distally in a symmetrical fashion. We can pull simultaneously both medial and lateral sutures, and we approximate the torn suture end until the defect is no longer palpable. And that transverse incision, uh, that 1.2 centimeter transverse incision, allows us to see directly what is happening there. We maintain maximum plantar flexion, as Dr. Hans does, because the most important thing in our hands is to, um, to avoid subsequent tendon elongation. And we do that way. 
what we have shown in several in several papers has been that um, that uh, surgical repair using percutaneous technique is better in our hands is better than conservative management and uh, the superior cosmetic appearance is accompanied by also uh, better uh, functional results Minimal invasive surgery offers similar results to open surgery with decreased perioperative morbidity. It can be performed as an office procedure. Therefore, the patients don't need a bed, essentially. They can, they can stay, come out, uh, they can stay just a few hours in the hospital. This minimizes uh, costs for themselves and for the hospital itself. In conclusion, um, there is an increased incidence in Achilles tendon ruptures, as the first speaker has shown. The evidence for best management is still debated. Open surgery in some hands still stays as the gold standard, but it has a high risk of surgical skin breakdown, quantifiable in about 11%, and the wound problems are prevented by percutaneous repair. We perform a percutaneous repair under local anesthesia, followed by early functional rehabilitation. This is uh, increasingly commonly performed in our setting, and we consider in selected patients, but I use it in, uh, in elite athletes as well. Some of you wanted to know, uh, was part of the chat uh, that I picked on earlier, um, whether, we can, whether we can perform these techniques uh, in, when, in cases of delayed presentations. This has been recently published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, and we have shown in a case control study that uh, delayed uh, presentation up to 30 days still allows a, a safe percutaneous repair. I must say that this is a, a, not a novel re result. And for example, the work by Professor Thurman in uh, Germany does show that uh, already in the 90s, uh, they knew that this was the case. In conclusion, therefore, several percutaneous techniques are proposed. There's a lack of appropriate trials. There's no trial that compares head to head two percutaneous techniques. And in that respect, we need more controlled, uh, more, more controlled trials. There is no clear consensus regarding optimal post-operative rehabilitation protocol. We do like immediate weight bearing exercises and early range of motion exercises. It looks as if all of us would agree that we should avoid dorsiflexion and that we should avoid stretching. Uh, massage is controversial, but I don't like my patients to be massaged in any ways because if, this ha if they undergo massage, I've seen several cases of reactive uh, inflammatory reaction, which are then very difficult to settle. Remember, please, the recovery is less good than we thought. In conclusion, there's no clear consensus, however, but early range of motion exercise where, when the early weight bearing is advocated. And our editorials in the BMJ and in the Lancet um, do show how treatment decisions should be taken early and that whatever we do, please make sure that you mobilize these patients early and that you wait better these patients earlier. Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. That, that was outstanding and, uh, and a really, really cool technique. So um, to all of the attendees, you know, thank you for attending. You're, you're gonna see in front of you a survey. There are three questions on this. We'd like to get an idea of current practices. So if you have a moment, both attendees and panelists to, to just fill out this three question survey that's on your screen, uh, that would be uh, that would be really helpful. So uh, some of us, uh, the panelists, are going to stick around to answer some of the chat questions. Unfortunately, this brings us to the end of our of our live time. 
So I, I just want to give a special thanks to the ISACOS team for putting this together and a thanks to my panelists. That was really an outstanding set of talks. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and for enlightening all of this. I, I, I learned a lot and I greatly appreciate it. And, and finally, to the attendees, thanks for, for being on and for your attention and uh, have a wonderful rest of the evening. Take care, everybody. Thank you, great pleasure to have been here. Stay safe. Yeah, I'll reiterate that. Stay safe, stay, stay healthy, and and um, and keep yourselves well. <laughs>